Okay. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 2. Just before I start, I want to apologize in advance just in case um, because of my prep for the Kenyan pastors conferences I have in the last 21 days uh, I've done 22 I prepared 22 teaching outlines yeah what is right and um, that's that's a rapid fire kind of thing and um, the reason I want to apologize is my my head is literally swimming with doctrine. Uh, that's a good. There's a good thing about that, but the bad thing is, you know, when if I'm trying to teach you from Revelation two and and I'm thinking of Romans seven, um, you know, it's it's not exactly the right focus. So if I stumble or bumble a little bit, please uh, bear with me today. All right, Revelation chapter two. What we're doing for a short teaching series that's kind of interrupted our long, longer and ongoing teaching series through the book of Acts is uh, because of the, the recent 35th anniversary of this church, um, I felt like the Lord put it on my heart to share with you the, the um, study of these seven letters to these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. They're representative churches and the messages that were crafted by the Lord himself and then sent through the Apostle John by messenger to these seven churches. They're specific to each one of the seven churches and their unique set of circumstances, both practically and spiritually. But ultimately, these are letters that are meant to benefit all the churches throughout all of church history including us and they're what we can call evaluation letters remember the the imagery that these letters are based on goes back to the vision in chapter one the the first great vision of the book of revelation where um, the lord revealed himself to the apostle john as the high priest in god's temple who was who was standing at first standing in the midst and then later seen as walking among these seven golden lampstands which he explained were symbolic and representative of these seven churches and i can't go back for the sake of time into the whole lampstand equals church uh, representation but we focused on that as we began this study but the bottom line is the job of the high priest as he went in during the days of the temple, as he went into the temple on a daily basis, his primary responsibility was to approach the lampstands in the, in the temple and then to evaluate them. And what he was evaluating was the oil level in each one of the seven lamps on each one of the 10 lampstands. If the oil level was low, he was to refill it so that the, the lampstand could burn for the duration of that day until he arrived back on the job the next day. The other thing he was to do was to, he was to evaluate the wicks and he was to trim away any burnt out dead area so that the lamp could burn as brightly as it was intended to burn. Now, all of this is symbolic about what the Lord does now in his relationship to these seven churches as he evaluates them. He's evaluating what needs to be filled up. So there are things in these churches that, that are good but need to be strengthened. And so he, he acknowledges what good things are going on in the church 
from his perspective, not from a natural human perspective, but from heaven's perspective, he evaluates what's good in these churches and he encourages that. He fills up the oil level and then he evaluates what things are happening in the church that are not pleasing to him that need to be trimmed away, that need to be cut off or cut out of the life of the church. So there are both encouragements and then there are exhortations and in some cases, like we'll see with the letter that we're studying today, there are even uh, critical judgments that are rendered by the Lord that are intended to shock the church into a new point of awareness in order to make desperately needed spiritual changes. All right, so let's read. We are up to the third letter in this series of seven. This is the letter to the church in Pergamum. And I'm identifying, uh, as we've done with each one of the churches so far, I'm identifying this church as a, as a compromised, spiritually compromised church. Reading from verse 12 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. All right, let me give you some brief background about the city of Pergamum and the the cultural and social circumstances of the city, and then we'll dig into the details of what the Lord had to say to the church within the city of Pergamum. Remember, I mentioned that these seven churches were were all closely connected to each other geographically. They're they're all located in what we would identify as modern-day Turkey, and uh, they are all right near the island which was just off the coast uh, where John was imprisoned, the island of Patmos. And these seven were connected by a Roman postal route so that uh, as a letter would be sent from the prison island of Patmos, it would first reach the city of Ephesus, which happens to be the first letter. Then it would next, the, the postal carrier would next go to the city of Smyrna, which was just north of Ephesus, and then the third stop on his route was the city of Pergamum. Pergamum was about uh, 55 miles north of Smyrna, and about 15 miles inland, it was not a coast uh, town, it was not, uh, it had no harbor in in that sense. Uh, The the Roman historian uh, Pliny said this about the city of Pergamum. It was considered in the Roman Empire to be by far the most distinguished city of Asia. Now, Asia was that region of the world as it was known in the Roman Empire. Uh, So it was a a significant city. 
and certainly uh, uh, intentionally in terms of the city's perspective, intentionally part of the Roman Empire. They, they took great pride in their connection to Rome and the part they played in the eastern portion of the Roman Empire. Uh, the city was famous, and their greatest industry was their parchment industry. So there were two things that uh, were used to, to do writing. One was a kind of paper um, that, um, that was known as papyrus. And then um, the other way of writing is you could write on these animal skins, which was then uh, parchment. But the animal skins had to be prepared in a very specific way in order to function as uh, a good good substance for the scrolls that were the books that they studied. So uh, Pergamum was known throughout the Roman Empire as the source for this uh, parchment. In fact, our word parchment comes from the ancient name for the city of Pergamum. Uh, They had a huge library there. Because of the parchment industry, uh, this library was centered there, and it was um, the second biggest library in the ancient world, second only to Alexandria, which was also famous for its library. In this library, there were some 200,000 scrolls of, of various ancient books that were then renowned, and the city became renowned for a, as a kind of repository for the knowledge of the ancient world and the knowledge of the Roman Empire. And the city took great pride in their library. Um, the the religious culture of the city of Pergamum had to do with, uh, there were many uh, temples dedicated to various Greek and Roman gods, but there were four temples that were in great prominence above the others. Uh, one was the temple to Zeus, who was the, the uh, chief god of the Greeks and, and renamed Jupiter in the Roman Empire. Uh, so there was this uh, great temple dedicated to Zeus. Second, Athena. And of course, Athena was the goddess of wisdom, and she was connected as a patron to the library. Uh, the collection of books and knowledge was, was uh, in their perspective, kind of an honoring of the goddess Athena. Um, Asclepius, who was the, the ancient god of, of medicine and healing, and uh, then the fourth and greatest temple of all of them are in, in terms of how the culture viewed the importance of their temples uh, there in Pergamum was a temple that was dedicated to the Roman emperor Caesar. In fact, um, this city was the first of the Roman Empire cities in the, the development of what later became emperor worship they were the first city to actually build a temple to the honor of the worshiping of the Roman emperor. And as a result, um, the Roman emperors tended to really like this city because they were being worshiped as a god and the city took great pride in that as well. Now, one of the um, details connected to these temples is as a result of the temple to Zeus and Asclepius, both Zeus and Asclepius were given special titles in Pergamum and their title was Soter, S-O-T-E-R. So Zeus Soter and Asclepius Soter. Now that Greek word Soter translates in the New Testament as the word Savior. So Zeus was identified as the savior of Pergamum and Asclepius, the the medicinal god, was also identified as the savior of Pergamum. And then um, the the, uh, temple dedicated to Caesar 
uh, brought one special title that was only used for Caesar, uh, Caesar, and that was the Greek word kurios. And kurios is the word that's translated throughout the New Testament as Lord. And so as part of the worship that took place in the temple dedicated to Caesar, the worshiper would approach the altar to Caesar's honor. They would offer a sacrifice and they would declare openly and publicly, Caesar is kurios. Caesar is Lord. And this was uh, considered to be a citizen level duty of all that lived in the city of Pergamum. All right, so what we've talked about is that each one of these seven letters um, has, its, um, has its own details that are specific to that city, but they all follow a similar pattern. And the pattern is meant to be noticed by the reader in terms of comparison with the other letters that were written. And the first thing that we've mentioned that the Lord does in every single one of these seven letters is he introduces himself to the church. Now, I I just want to reemphasize this. I've talked about it for each of the two letters we've studied so far, but it's an important thing to remember. These are Christian churches, and we're not talking about lost Christian churches in name only. These are brand new churches of a brand new, growing, living, breathing church life that's taking place because of the gospel that's spreading now through the Roman Empire. These are true believers that are gathered in this city of Pergamon. There was only one church, one true church. It was this church that is being written to in this letter. And so the question is, why does the Lord feel the need at the beginning of the letter to introduce himself to his own people? The introduction in this case is this, verse 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's how the Lord chooses to introduce himself to his own people in Pergamum. But he used a different a different introduction in the letter to the Ephesians and a different introduction to the church in Smyrna. Why this particular one? Uh, Turn back for just a moment to uh, chapter one. And I've mentioned that in all of these introductions that the Lord makes of himself to the church, he uses different elements of what John saw in the initial vision where the Lord revealed himself to John. And so in John's vision of the the resurrected and ascended Lord, look back in chapter 1, verse 16, as John is looking at the ascended Lord. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We learn later from the Lord himself that those seven stars represent the seven angels that oversee the churches. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So this is just one of the the visionary elements, the revelatory elements that John sees when the Lord reveals himself to John in his glory. And now in his introduction to the Pergamum church, the Lord takes that introduction and he says, I want you to remember this about me. Or Maybe if they've never fully learned this about the Lord, this is now the critical time in the life of the church for them to really get that this is who the Lord is. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, and he 
identifies that with his words, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, why is that critically important and why does the Lord call their attention to it? Uh, turn, we'll keep our place here in Revelation, but turn, if you would, for a moment back to what's probably a familiar passage for you in Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So the context of what's about to be said is the danger of falling into disobedience. And the context of chapter four, which we won't take the time to read, but I'll remind you, is Paul the Apostle here is addressing Hebrew believers in Christ, Jewish believers in Christ, and he's using an example from their own national history, a very important example of the journey of the children of Israel from Egypt through the wilderness and eventually to the promised land. A journey of salvation that we call the Exodus, a journey of deliverance from an old life to a new life. And yet in that journey, what happened to that first generation of Israelites that left Egypt expecting if they were walking in a straight line to go from Egypt to the promised land, it would have taken no more than a month's journey. And how long did their journey actually take? 40 years. And, and, and it's not because they just walked exceptionally slow. It's that they went around and around the same wilderness area in circles. And they didn't go round and around because they didn't know where to head. It's not that they didn't know how to navigate by the stars. They did. They went round and around in circles because how were the children of Israel led in all of their journeys in the wilderness? They were led by the pillar of fire and cloud, which was the symbolic presence of the Lord, leading them from camping spot to camping spot on their journey. So when they, when they eventually reached as close as they had ever reached to the promised land, that point on the, on the river Jordan where they would eventually cross during the days of Joshua and enter the promised land, as they reached the closest point, the Lord did a U-turn with that pillar of fire and cloud and led them back through the wilderness. Why? The point is there were lessons that they needed to learn that they had not learned. Heart lessons, not just head lessons. And their heart lessons had ultimately to do with whether they were going to trust the Lord and obey the Lord. And so the context here in verse 11 is, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Let us strive to enter the promised land so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that kept the entire first generation with only two exceptions from entering the promised land. And then he immediately connects it, Paul does in verse 12 with this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The, the whole context of this passage is spiritual evaluation of the people that claim to follow the Lord. 
just like we are focused on in these seven letters. So when the Lord introduces himself to the church in Pergamum and he says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does he want the church to know about him? He is an evaluator of his own people. And the words that come out of his mouth are sharp and they will divide and distinguish between truth and error, between obedience and disobedience. And you can fool yourself and you can fool your neighbor. You can fool the believer that sits on your left or right or in front of you or back of you, but you cannot fool the one who has this sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And then he emphasizes it in this way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you the way it's actually written in Greek. Now, I'm not going to read Greek to you, but I'm going to read it to you transliterated from the Greek so that you can catch the special emphasis. This is how the Lord says it. The words of him who has the sword, the double-edged, the sharp one. It's, it's kind of an awkward phrasing in English. But the way it works in the original language as it was first revealed to John is it just layer upon layer emphasizes you don't want to mess with this sword. Because this sword is sharp. It is double-edged. You cannot play around with the one who has this sword coming out of his mouth. Now, I think there's a second element here that's also very culturally specific to Pergamum. Pergamum, again, was an imperial city of Rome, meaning they were, they were 100% behind their connection to Rome. They were Rome supporters, and it was an official city of the empire. Not every city within their territory had this kind of qualification. And because they were an official imperial city, there was a, a Roman governor called a proconsul that ruled over the city. And he had the full authority and weight of the Roman Caesar behind him. And he held in his hand whenever he would sit to judge any of the citizens or people within the city what was called he bore the right of the sword. That means he, the, the, the symbol of Romans, the Roman Empire's might was the, the Roman gladius, this, this shorter but exceptionally sharp and, and useful for warfare two-edged sword. And the, the proconsul, whenever he would sit for judgment, he bore a sword on his hip, but he would pull the sword out just as he was sitting for judgment, just as a symbol of, I hold the power of life and death over everyone that stands before me for judgment. So when the Lord introduces himself as the one who holds the sword, the double-edged, the sharp one, I think the emphasis is to say to Pergamum, don't fear the proconsul who claims to have the right of the sword. And he certainly did have the right of the sword over the physical bodies of everybody within the, the city of Pergamum and the surrounding region. But ultimately, only the one who has this double-edged sharp sword coming from his mouth has the ultimate right 
of the sword. And their, their concern should be more in pleasing him than in pleasing the proconsul over the city of Pergamum. Now the Lord then shifts in verse 13 to describe his understanding just as an encouragement to their struggling hearts. And, and why would they be struggling? The, the church of Pergamum was again, like the Smyrna church, just a little bit different circumstance, but like the Smyrna church, uh, they're a church that is uh, dealing with some measure of persecution. Uh, even just at the level, remember I mentioned about the, uh, the temple dedicated to Caesar and the requirement, if you were going to be identified in the social circles of Pergamum as a good citizen of this imperial city, it was required of citizens to go once a year minimum into the temple that was dedicated to Caesar's worship and honor and to offer that sacrifice to Caesar as a divinity, as a deity, and then to proclaim publicly in the hearing of the other citizens there participating in the ceremony, Caesar is Lord. Now could a a right-minded and right-hearted believer in Christ Jesus participate in that ceremony? Could a believer make that declaration? It would be like saying in, in, in our culture, the President of the United States is Lord overall. I can't make that declaration. I could not make that declaration. And if I chose not to, now I'm going to face social ramifications. It may affect my business. It may affect my social standing. It may affect my relationship with my neighbors. It may affect many things that are going on in my life circumstances that I would prefer to be more favorable. But am I willing to endure that cost for the sake of maintaining my allegiance to the only one who truly can be publicly identified and declared Lord. So the Lord says to them in verse 13, and I believe it's just purely an encouraging word to their struggling hearts. I know where you dwell. I made the emphasis last week on how the Lord said a similar thing to the Smyrnans. I know, I know your circumstance. The Lord's intimate knowledge of where we live and what we're dealing with, what kind of challenges spiritually we're facing in our life. But he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So theologians are a little bit conflicted upon why the Lord identified Pergamum as the the location of Satan's throne. This is a unique thing for the the letter to the the church in Pergamum. There's none of the other six letters where the Lord says, oh, you, you also live where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne was not located in Ephesus. It was not located in Smyrna. It was not located in Thyatira or any of the other seven uh, cities that the Lord is addressing here. It was located specifically in this city. So the, the debate is there's two possible answers to why the Lord identified this city is where Satan's throne is. One is this temple to Zeus who was identified as the savior of Pergamum. There was a gigantic altar dedicated to the worship of Zeus and it was visible even before you entered the city of Pergamum it was built on kind of a a plateau that was above the city and it was it was like eye-catching it would be like uh, you know if you're entering the harbor in New York City and you see this statue of a woman holding a torch um, above the harbor 
Do you know you're entering New York City when you see the Statue of Liberty? It's identifiable with the city in the same way the altar of Zeus was identifiable with Pergamum. So some think that this altar to Zeus is what the Lord is referring to. I personally go with the second view, which is, again, the identification of Pergamum as the first of the imperial cities in the entire empire to say, you know what? The emperor is so amazing so special, so much greater than all other human beings that we now consider the emperor to be a god to be worshipped. So we are going to build a temple to his honor and we are going to have a ceremony of worship where we will all as good citizens declare that Caesar is Lord. And so I believe that this was the reference that the Lord Jesus was making. The, The question really comes down to who is Lord? Is it Caesar or is it Jesus? And so he says, I know where you live or where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then this wonderful word of encouragement for them. Because this was not easy for them to, to do what he describes. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, this is the only place in the Bible where Antipas is mentioned. We do not know anything more about him than this. Even um, biblical archaeology hasn't turned up any additional information about Antipas. So I don't want to create a story around him other than what is obvious from this brief description. He was one of the first Christian martyrs. He was a martyr in this city, and he died for one reason, apparently, and that is, in some way, he was in opposition to what Jesus identifies as Satan's throne. Personally, I think it was likely that he refused to publicly declare that Caesar was Lord and may have done so in a particularly bold and obvious way to call even extra attention to his declaration of allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And apparently there was some reaction and response that was stirred up. We see similar things happening in the book of Acts. And ultimately, whatever happened in that circumstance, it led to his death that day. He was killed for one reason only, his allegiance to Christ and to the gospel and how that conflicted with the social norms of the society and the culture that surrounded them. And the Lord encourages their hearts. He uses Antipas as an example of this is a wonderful thing. That has, this church has held fast their faithfulness, their allegiance to him, to his name, to the gospel, to the word of God, to the truth that only Jesus is Lord. And if the letter had ended in verse 13, you'd have to put the Pergamum church right up there with Smyrna as we studied in our last study as a, a wonderful example of Christian faithfulness under the most extreme levels of pressure. The problem is the letter didn't end in verse 13. And had I been, and had you been in the church the day that this letter was first read, um, you know, the letter takes a sharp turn between verse 13 and verse 14. The Lord says, but I have a few things against you. 
I mentioned this when we were back in the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, You never want to hear, as a true believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, a child, a true child of God, you never want to hear these words from the mouth of the Lord directed at you. I have something against you. That's not light correction. The Lord will correct you in a light way if your offense is a light offense toward him. He will still correct you even if it's light because as a, as a faithful father, he will ensure that you are growing in every possible way that he wants you to grow. But when he says, I have something against you, this is not a light level offense. This is a deep and serious and significant offense. And I had mentioned this in the Ephesian letter. How many things did he have against the Ephesian church? Do you remember? Just one thing. They had left their first love for the Lord. In all of their faithfulness to the word of God and to the essential doctrines of the faith and their discerning judgment in a good way against false teachers, false apostles, false prophets, those that were twisting and abusing the gospel of salvation into some other kind of message. He had this one thing against them. And I had mentioned then, you know, it would actually be a good thing to know the Lord's only got one thing against us. The Pergamum church, though, he says, I have a few things against you. Now, that's pretty serious territory. When the Lord, with one hand, pats you on the back and he says, good job, you've, you've held to my name, you haven't denied my, my name. And then with the other hand, he's starting the process of discipline. And he says, I have a few things against you. What does he have against them? <clears throat> he mentions two. It's interesting. He had a few things. How many is a few normally? More than two. More than two. Some say five. Some say six. A few is a handful. It's more than just one or two. But he only mentions two. Why? I mean, wouldn't you want to know everything that the Lord has against you? Yes, but... These two things, I think, are so significant, so serious, so detrimental to the church that he only focuses their attention on the two because why even bother correcting you with the other two or three or four things if you don't get these two things straightened out? Because if you don't get these two things straightened out, the other things won't even matter. So what's so serious? I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Second thing, verse 15, so you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'll I'll get to that again. We focused on that all the way back in the uh, letter to the Ephesians. Um, it's mentioned, the Nicolaitans are mentioned in chapter 2, verse 6, as the Lord corrects the Ephesians. I'll remind you of what that was all about. But first, let's be clear about what this teaching, holding to the teaching of Balaam is. It's a whole study unto itself. Obviously, I won't have time to fully develop it. But Balaam's just a really interesting character in the Old Testament. His whole story is found in the book of Numbers. 
It's during the time of the children of Israel's journey through the wilderness. And um, it happens when they are passing through a specific territory belonging to a, a people known as the Midianites. Now they're going to, after they eventually enter the promised land, they're going to have long history interacting with the Midianites and most of it is just not good. It's, it's, they're all, the Midianites function as a continuing challenge for the, the Israelites throughout uh, many generations to follow. But during that wilderness journey, they enter the, the territory of the Midianites and the king of Midian at that time who is Balak, he's mentioned here by the Lord, he sees the children of Israel. I mean, if you can imagine, here's some people passing through your territory. Do you remember how many there were of the Israelites? The, the scripture mentions that there were three million men. There's women and children beside. It's a huge population. It's like a sizable city that's just suddenly shown up at your doorstep and is entering your territory. Do you think Balaam was, Balak was like, let me just open wide my arms. We got food for everybody. We got territory for everyone. Glad to have you. It's good to meet you. Do you think that was his attitude? No, he didn't want anything to do with the Israelites entering his territory. And he was desperate. And so he found this prophet by the name of Balaam. And his desire was, I want you. He went to hire Balaam. He says, I want you to do me something, do for me something I can't do for myself. I want you to spiritually curse this people that are entering my territory. I want them to shrivel up and die and blow away with the wind. I want them gone. But I can't make that happen with the military. I don't have an army that's big enough and strong enough at this particular moment in time. So I want you to curse them for me. And just short forming the the whole story, Balaam wanted to do it because the king was offering him a lot of money. But he knew he shouldn't do it because he knew they were the Lord's people. And so there's this back and forth, and eventually you know how the story works is the Lord actually ended up doing a miracle and speaking to Balaam, the prophet, through his own donkey that he was riding and correcting him. And so Balaam realized, okay, I gotta take my hands off. I cannot curse them no matter what the king offers me. You know, even if I, I never get this reward that he's offering, I cannot curse them. So later in the story, what Balaam does in his, in his scheming is he says, okay, the Lord won't let me curse them for you, but I've got an idea. Let's do this. Send some of your most beautiful women to interact with the men of Israel and to lure them to uh, participate in the... Uh, the sacrifices and the ceremonies that we perform for the gods of the people of Midian. Lure them in through uh, sexual attraction and get them to participate in a religious ceremony that will offend their God and then he will curse them for you. It's a brilliant idea. And it worked. And so they, the king sent the women. They, they got a, a large number of the men of Israel to participate in their religious ceremony. And they compromised their faithfulness to the Lord. The men of Israel did not outright deny the Lord. They didn't just stand up and say, okay, I no longer follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. I no longer believe in him. They said, I follow Yahweh. I believe in him. And also... I'm willing to do this on the side. I'm willing to compromise 
with sexual immorality with these women who are offering themselves to me and I'm willing to compromise by participating in their religious ceremony. So now let's reread what the Lord says here, verse 14, with our understanding of the historic context of the original story. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. That's the participate in the religious ceremonies to the false gods of the surrounding culture and practice sexual immorality. So there were some teachers, some leaders, some influential people within the church of Pergamum that began to teach the congregation of Pergamum that it was okay for reaching the culture around them and connecting to the culture around them to begin to compromise with the surrounding culture. And that compromise most likely was go ahead and participate in the, in the ceremonies at the, uh, dedicated to the Temple of Zeus, who's the savior of Pergamum, the Temple of Asclepius, the, the Temple of Athena, and even the temple dedicated to Caesar's honor. And if you have to say the word Caesar is Lord, or if you have to say Jesus, um, uh, Zeus is Savior, you know, that's all well and good because you're, you're reaching the culture. You're connecting. You know, we, we can't wall ourselves off from the surrounding culture. This teaching was along those lines. It was teaching the church to culturally and socially compromise the standards of the Lord in order to maintain their standing in the surrounding community. Now, let me ask you a question. How many cultural standards that are at odds with the standards of the Lord as revealed in his word, how many of those surrounding cultural standards does a church in any generation, in any place, including ours, in this culture that we live in, how many surrounding cultural standards do we need to embrace and adopt in order to become a compromised church just one just one you know it's like the idea of how much dirt do you need to put in a clean glass of water until you have dirty water you don't need a lot of dirt in a glass of clean water for it to become dirty water if i introduce you know how many drops of poison do I need to introduce into your food in order for it to become poisonous food? Do I need 100 drops of poison? Or is just one drop, and you know I'm putting poison into your food, are you just going to go ahead and eat it? Because oh, there's only one drop of poison in it. It's no, no big deal. You don't know how poisonous the poison may be, is the point. And the Lord doesn't want his people, he doesn't want his church to make compromises in order to connect. Now, do we... Are we called to connect with the surrounding culture? Yes, we are called to connect. We are to be like the city set on a hill, showing light to the surrounding culture. We're to be like the salt that preserves the surrounding culture. And the only way salt can preserve what it preserves is by contact with that surrounding substance. So we are, we are set as churches in the midst of a fallen and corrupted society and culture. We must connect in order to represent the Lord to that culture. 
But the danger for all churches in all generations is how much of the surrounding standards are we embracing and adopting and replacing the Lord's standards with the cultural standards that surround us. Listen, I get all kinds of Christian newsletters and information in my email inbox, and it seems like every week there's some story of some church that has full on just abandoned the standards of God's word spiritually, morally, doctrinally in order to make nice with the culture in which we live, which is how much sat at odds with the ways of the Lord. Completely at odds. It's not just like, well, the culture is pretty close and, you know, we're not that, there's not that much difference. So just, you know, give a little bit here, give a little bit there. We are, we are, we are light in the midst of darkness. We are life in the midst of death. And yet we are called to reach that darkness and that death and, and represent the Lord in doing so. But if we are light and we take in darkness in order to reach the darkness, then we just become like what we are trying to reach. And we've lost our ability to transform it and to change it. So he says, I know where, I know where you live. I know what you're dealing with. But I have this against you. You've in, you have some who hold to this teaching of Balaam. And also in verse 15, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I mentioned in the Ephesian study in chapter 2 that the Nicolaitans were, uh, they were teachers that were teaching about, about what is called theologically syncretism. Syncretism is blending things together that don't belong together. Mixing elements that are not meant to be mixed. So yes, we will hold to the truth of the word of God and we will hold to this principle of the surrounding culture and we'll mix these practices together. And, and yes, it's an amalgam. It's kind of a mixture. But as long as we've got the good stuff in there, we don't have to worry about the bad stuff that we've just introduced. So both the Nicolaitan influence and the Balaam influence were very, very similar in their end result. So how does the Lord respond to all of this? Verse 16, he has a very direct and simple word that he gives to the church. Therefore, this is directed to Christians, not to unbelievers. Therefore, repent. Repent simply means change your mind, change your heart, and ultimately change your behavior because your mind and your heart see differently than they previously did. You need to change. You need to stop it is essentially the the message of therefore repent. And then this word of warning. The Lord is gracious to warn his church when it needs to be warned. If not, if not what? If you won't repent. I mean, think of that. The Lord, you hear a word from the Lord, repent. Change your mind about this. Change your actions about this. Change your attitude and perspective about this. You say, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm quite comfortable right the way things are and the choices I've already made. The Lord says, if not, if you refuse to repent, 
I will come to you soon. Now, I mentioned that all of these letters are a result of visits that the Lord has made to these churches. He is currently visiting the Pergamum church as he's speaking these words to them. And he's saying, look, I'm going to come back. I will be back. I'm going to come for a second visit. This visit was an evaluation visit. The next visit, I'm not going to be evaluating. The next visit, this is what's going to happen if you refuse to repent. If not, I will come to you soon. He's not going to wait a long time to lower the boom. I will come to you soon and war against them with the word or the sword of my mouth. I, I'm, I'm going to shift from evaluation mode to warfare mode. Now, you want to talk about spiritual warfare? That's spiritual warfare. But can you imagine? This is the Lord warring against his own church. That's how seriously he takes this. He will not allow this level of spiritual compromise to continue within his church. And so he says, I will war. And I I, I like this. He's not coming to war against the entire church. He's coming to war with who? Who is he going to go to war with? I will come to you soon and war against them. Them who? Those that are teaching the way of Balaam and the way of the Nicolaitans and those that are choosing to embrace that teaching and follow them. So there's, this is going to be a division within the church. Some are going to remain faithful to the Lord. Some are going to remain unfaithful. And the Lord's coming and he's going to start spiritual warfare with those that are now in the place of unfaithfulness. And then this line, verse 17, that repeats for all the seven churches, just so that we don't miss that this might have an application for us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then with all of the letters, he gives final words of hope, final words of, of you know, if, if, you, if you listen to me, if you embrace what I'm saying, if you receive my correction, if you repent, if you do the right thing, you will be counted among the conquerors, and this is what I promise to you. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what is that? The hidden manna was the manna kept within the Ark of the Covenant, within the tabernacle and temple of the Lord. It was manna taken from their journey which was signifying the Lord's provision along their entire wilderness journey. And it was to be taken by Aaron the high priest and placed within a golden jar. And that jar was to be placed in the box which formed the on-earth symbolic expression of the throne of God in heaven. And it was signifying that the Lord is the provider for his faithful people, those that remain true to him in right covenant relationship with him. Here it's just a promise of, I will provide for you. If you remain faithful to me, you will eat of the hidden manna that's coming directly from me upon my throne. And then one other word of hope. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is a really interesting promise that the Lord makes to the church. Uh, It came from the ancient version of the Olympic Games. And the winner of the various events in the ancient Olympic Games was given a thing that was like a, like a, a rectangular stone, a flat stone, and it was a white stone, and it was called a tessera. And it was awarded to the winner of the games, the conqueror of the games. And 
the name of the winner, like our gold medals today for the Olympics, the name of the winner was inscribed on the stone that was given to them. But that stone served a very, very uh, uh, beneficial and rewarding purpose in the life of that winner, the one who won the tessera, for, from then on for the rest of their life in society. From then on, it was an admission ticket for free to any of the feasts within the various temples of the city. So that you could go to the temple of Zeus, you could go to the temple of Caesar, you could go to the temple of Athena, Asclepius, and you could get in and eat from the feast without having to pay the price of worshiping at that particular feast. It was a get get into the feast free ticket for the rest of their life. Why would the Lord say that? Is he saying, I want you to go eat at these, these false God temples? No, he's saying, look, if you will conquer, I will give you a white stone with a special name, a new identity that I've given to you on it. And this is your permanent admission ticket into my feast. You will have a place in my temple forever and ever, and you will always eat for free because you have remained allegiant and faithful to me and to my name, even under the most extreme pressures of compromise and persecution that surround you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and how you chose to speak to this church in Pergamum in an ancient culture, a, a completely different practical circumstance than the one we live in and long, long ago. But um, I, I know and trust, Lord, that your spirit is still speaking to your true churches even today through these letters. I pray that you would grant us the grace to have ears to hear what the spirit is saying to the church in Pergamum. May we learn the lessons that some of them failed to learn. May we remain faithful and true. May we be a people that do not compromise with the surrounding culture and society. And uh, may we be counted among those that are worthy to receive in your perspective the tessera that ensures our admission to your great feast on that final day when we sit down and celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb with your Son. I thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.